From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, brother. Good morning, church. My name is Jackson Randall. If we have not had the chance to meet yet, I am so glad to be here with you. Um, just recently joined the staff at Christ's Covenant and uh, was uh, hired to serve as a discipleship pastor here. And it's just been a joy to be here and be a part of this faith family for the two-ish months that we have been here. And so thank you for receiving us. And I want you to know it's a great honor and a joy to be able to stand here with you today so that we can sit under the word together and be formed by this word as the Lord, by the Spirit, applies the word to our hearts. And if you haven't been with us for the past couple of weeks, uh, maybe you're unfamiliar or maybe you need a refresher, uh, we've been considering our vision as a church. Uh, what we uh, are aiming at and how we desire to get to that end. And, and so uh, we've considered these various statements that we as a church desire to be a people who know the gospel, uh, be a people who love the kingdom, the people of God, this kingdom family that we've been united together with. And then today we're going to consider the final phrase of this vision statement that we want to live the mission, live the mission. That's what we are going to be considering today. And, and as I've been considering this and wrestling with this, my mind has fluttered off to 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read briefly from 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is pro proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, just to orient you a little bit to what Paul is saying here, he's saying that if Jesus isn't really who he said he was, and if Jesus didn't do all the things that the Bible says that he did, then all of our religious activity is worthless, worthless. So everything that we've done here today is worthless. Our gathering together and singing is worthless. Our praying is worthless. You sitting under the preached word right now is worthless. Gathering together in community groups so you can apply the word that is worthless. Every act of devotion of your life has been worthless. Every dollar given to the church 
Uh, every prayer that you've prayed, every moment that you've spent reading your Bible and contemplating the gospel is worthless if Jesus really didn't live the righteous life that the Bible says that he lived. And if he didn't really die the, the grievous death that the Bible says that he did, and if he didn't really rise from the grave, it's all worthless. I've been considering this a lot lately because we just moved. Two and a half months ago, we were living in California. We were in Los Angeles area, and we were gearing up for this move to Georgia, to Atlanta, to, to come and be a part of Christ's covenant and this faith family and what the Lord is doing here. And as excited as we were and as excited as we are presently to be here, it, it was big. We loved our life in California. We had great friends. We had family. We had a church family, all of whom we loved. And you, you might have heard of the, the great California exodus that's happening right now. That is a very real thing, but we didn't want to be a part of that exodus. We love California, and we loved being a part of what the Lord is doing there. Nevertheless, we felt like the Lord was leading us, and we, we loved what the Lord is doing here in this church. We want to be a part of that, and so it felt right to steward our lives by coming here. Nevertheless, it was hard, and that question would pop up, does it matter? Is it worth anything? Well, what 1 Corinthians 15 says is that if, if all this stuff, the, these components of the gospel, if Jesus' life, death, his resurrection, his ascension, particularly his resurrection in view in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, if these aren't true, then it doesn't matter. All of our decisions for Christ don't matter. All of your decisions for Christ don't matter if it's not true. But it is true. All of it. Jesus really did live the righteous life that we could not live. Jesus really did die a grueling death in our place that we deserve to die. Jesus really did gloriously triumph over the grave and he really did ascend to the right hand of the Father where he is today interceding on our behalf. And because it's true, our lives live for Christ are not worthless. In fact, they are endued with worth. They have purpose, they have value. And because Jesus lived and died and rose again, now our entire lives are to be lived in reference to that glorious gospel. Every little aspect of our lives. And that's what we've been trying to consider as a church over these past few weeks. Because of Jesus and his gospel, Jesus now demands our minds. He demands our affections. And he demands our actions. And that's true of us as individuals, but as a church, that's true as well. And so, so how can we set out as a church seeking to live pleasing lives to the Lord that are good, for, good that, are, uh, that uh, bless and honor the Lord, but are good for us as well? Well, we want to be a people who love the Lord with our minds. So we want to know the gospel. We want to love the, the Lord with our affections. So we want to love the kingdom. And now... We want to love the Lord, and so we want to love the Lord with our actions, so we want to live the mission. That's what we want to consider for the rest of our time together this morning, and do so from this passage that we've looked at now for 
two straight Sundays and now a third. I'm going to live the mission. What does 2 Corinthians 5 teach us about living the mission? We're going to see three things from the word this morning. First, God saves sinners. God saves sinners. Second, God sends ministers. God sends ministers. And finally, we are fools for Christ. So that's where we're going to be. That's the roadmap today. And we're going to start by considering this first idea. God saves sinners. And to see this, I want to direct your attention to verse 18. Now, this is a truth that I am praying will be so crystal clear that it will dominate the way that we think about the world and our lives and who we are in Christ. So important. Verse 18, all this is from God. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's where we begin. All this is from God. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21 is an incredible passage, an absolutely beautiful passage that is worth contemplating. It is worth building a vision statement around. It's worth wrestling with what does this mean for us as a church, as individuals. But recognize this, have this clear in your heads and your hearts. Before this is a passage about Christ's covenant, before this is a passage about you, before it's a passage about me, before it's a passage about our activity, this is a passage about God and what God has done and what God will do. God is the main character of this passage. God is the one who receives glory from this passage. God is the one who acts. We are the ones who are acted upon. God is the one who saves. We are the ones who are saved. God is the fountain of blessing. And we are those who freely receive that fountain flowing towards us. God is the one who we turn our attention to. And what we see in verse 18 is that God is doing two things. First, God is reconciling those who are in Christ to himself and second, he's giving the ministry of reconciliation to those who have been reconciled. So we want to consider both of those things, and we'll consider them in turn. And, and, and this is going to be a little bit of recap. Some of this is, is going to be redundant from the previous weeks. But nevertheless, I think it's important to get into our hearts for sure, but also to set up uh, this life of mission that we're hoping to consider today. So... What is God doing? God is reconciling. In these five short verses, the idea of reconciliation, either in noun form or verb form, it comes up five different times. Now, I know it's not like thrilling to go to school right now, but nevertheless, uh, whenever we see something show up five times like that in a short span, that's called repetition, okay? And it's a literary device. It's something that authors will use, that writers will use to signal something, to signal that something is important. So when you see something repeated like that over and over again, that, that's like Paul coming along and saying, this is important. He shines a spotlight and says, listen up, 
pay attention to this. Focus on this. And so here he highlights reconciliation. It says reconciliation is worth slowing down and camping on. There's something about that that demands your attention. So what is reconciliation according to the scriptures? Two things to consider. First, why do we need it? Why do we need reconciliation? Because as sinners, uh, we are those who sin by nature and by choice. As sinners, we are those who are naturally separated from God. Separated from God. Reconciliation has to do with relationship. Realize that. Reconciliation has to do with relationship. Sin has broken a previously established relationship that existed between God and man. We're talking about relationship here. The way Ephesians 2 puts it is that we were once separated from God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Romans 5 says that when we were apart from God, we were enemies of God. And so what we see in this whole idea of reconciliation is that apart from God in his intervening work, the natural state of man is one where man bends inward towards himself and lives for anything but God who he is supposed to live for. And so this is a problem. Why do we need reconciliation? Because the God of all glory, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of man has made us for himself, has made us to have a relationship with himself. And because of our sin, we have spurned this great God of glory. And we have introduced division. We have introduced enmity. We have separated ourselves willfully from this God. And now there exists an untraversable chasm between us and God. Where there used to be intimacy, where there used to be closeness, now there is space. There's so much space that we cannot overcome it. The second thing, though, about reconciliation is how do we get it? How do we get reconciliation? Reconciliation is a work of God. It is a work of God. We spent a decent amount of time considering this idea over the past two weeks, especially two weeks ago, so I don't want to do a deep dive here, but I will say this. Paul is the only New Testament author that talks about the idea of reconciliation. And whenever he does, God is always the subject of the the reconciling work, meaning that God is the one who reconciles and we are the people who are being reconciled. God is the subject. We are being acted upon. And we see that here in this passage. How do we enter back into a right relationship with God? How do we get brought near to God? How does intimacy begin to exist between God and man? Well, God acted. God takes initiative and he reconciles us. And our our passage says that he reconciles us through Jesus. 
And so the way that biblical scholars will put this is that Jesus becomes the agent of reconciliation. God moves towards us in Christ. We don't move towards God. He moved towards us in Christ. The idea here has reminded me of the belt line. So we're trying to be good Atlanteans, and so we're trying to embrace Atlanta things. And if you Google like what to do in Atlanta, that's the first thing that comes up on every single web page is go to the Beltline. And so we've gone to the Beltline and we like the Beltline. It's really fun. Uh, we like walking and electric scootering and all of the things on the Beltline. And that's great. Well, one of the interesting things about the Beltline is it's about 200 yards behind me right now. Like if you just go straight through here, about two football fields away is the Beltline. And so that's great, right? Like we should be able to walk over and have a great time together and go do a field trip over the belt line and finish out our time together this morning, right? It'll take like two minutes to walk there. Well, no, that's not the way it works, right? And the reason why is because to get to the belt line, even though it's just 200 yards that way, you have to cross over walls, barriers, and about 12 different railroad tracks, more walls and more barriers, in other words, you're not getting over there. In order to get to the belt line that's 200 yards away, you have to take this massive circuitous path and, and drive uh, a huge distance to get there. It's introversible. It's, you're, you're not going to get there. But um, filled up all of my news feeds and Twitter uh, feeds and notifications and alerts with Atlanta stuff lately, Atlanta news. And one of the things that keeps popping up is, is that this is not a problem, uh, not a new problem or an unknown problem. Lots of people want to be connected to the Beltline. There's different businesses or different streets that, that people want to be connected to the Beltline. And so what happens is, is some person or some city or some official will take initiative and they will come up with a plan to build a bridge to the Beltline. Have you guys heard about this happening? So the Ansley Mall right now wants to be connected to the Beltline, so they're building a bridge that's going to connect them to the Beltline. I think I've heard that that's a future plan for Armor Yards as well. But I can't do that. I don't have the financial resources to do that. I don't know how to build a bridge. I'm not very inclined to spend my time building a bridge over the massive train tracks over here. Like I'm not going to build that bridge at the end of the day. But there are people who have skills, who have resources, who have the means to make that happen one way or another. They need to build a bridge. Well, that's what I think we're seeing here in 2 Corinthians 5. A chasm existed between us and God. You know, the belt line's right over there, and I can see it, I like it, I want to be on the belt line, but I'm not going to get over there in my own power. And there's something similar with our relationship with God. In our sin, we may know of God. We may even see things in him that are desirable, but we're not going to take the initiative and make our way to God. We cannot do it in ourselves. But God can, and he did. God has reconciled the world to himself in Jesus. He took the initiative to bridge the gap between us through his son. 
Now, again, a lot of this is review. We, we've, we've already covered this. So why repeat it? Why keep going back to this idea? Well, if you're anything like me, and I'm guessing that you are, you're a people who are quick to forget. And you are a people who are prone to wander. Know this, we do not need the gospel every third or fourth or fifth Sunday. We need the gospel every minute, every hour, every day. We need to have this driven into our hearts constantly. We are a needy people. And so God is pleased to again and again and again remind us of his great love for us and his pursuit of us. But also, I think this is worth noting because we so often fail to account for the true nature of sin and our offense against God. Do you know that a recent study came out that said about 17% of Americans will define sin in reference towards God? For the vast majority of Christians, people identify as Christians in the United States, sin is something that is impersonal. Sin is something vague, it's something abstract. It's something that is done to nobody or against nobody. It's just something that kind of exists out in the ether. Now, as much as I love you and have grown to enjoy you as a church, my hunch is, is that Christ's covenant doesn't perfectly buck that trend. The reason why I would say that is because I know my own heart well enough to know that when I sin, the easiest thing for me to do is to compartmentalize and to explain it away and to turn it into something general. It's not actually an offense towards God. I'm just doing something bad. It's a whoopsie. It's something that I'll counterbalance. I think that's what we do. I think that is our nature that drives us. We don't want to offend a holy God. We don't want to personally shake our fist in God's face. But our sin is not vague. Our sin is not impersonal. It is not general. No, my friends, our sin is quite clearly and perversely aimed right at God. It is an offense towards God. Our sin is always against God. Think about the book of Hosea. How is sin characterized in the book of Hosea? It's characterized as spiritual adultery. And sinners are considered adulterers. Is there anything more personal than that? Psalm 51, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. You know, David, as he writes Psalm 51, he isn't thinking in generalities. No, he realizes that his sin is aimed directly at the God of all glory. I've sinned against you, God. We have shaken our fist at God. We have run away from God and we have pursued our passions, our pleasures. And it is not too extreme to say that we have hated God. And what has God done? Has he been content to let us run away from him? He would have been just to do so, but no. He tenderly and lovingly pursued us in Christ. He made a way when we could not and when we refused to pursue him. 
He made a way, and in Christ, he has taken us and brought him near, brought us near so that we would have an intimate, beautiful, joy-fueled relationship once again. Now, because of God's saving grace, because of Jesus, we are not far off. We are not aliens. We are not strangers. We are not enemies. We are sons and we are daughters. We're beloved. We have God and we have a bright hope and a future that is secure in Christ. So this is the first thing we see happening in verse 18. God is doing something. He is reconciling us to himself. But it's not the only thing he's doing. God is now involving us in his mission to reconcile. So the second thing we're going to consider this morning is that not only does God save sinners, but God sends ministers. I I think you could probably summarize the storyline of the Bible by saying something like, the great God of glory who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them is gathering a people to himself to be his holy people and to know him and enjoy him and worship him forever. Or some version of that. Well, I think that that is a beautiful vision. I think that's something that should lead us to worship God as we see the big thing that he is doing in the Bible and in the world even today. But how does God do this? We just considered he is saving sinners and he's doing so through his son. He's reconciling through Jesus. He is the agent of reconciliation. But, but how does Jesus get to people so that people can be reconciled to God? That's a question that that demands an answer. How can people have their sins be forgiven? How can people be brought near? Well, the answer is you. You are how people will be brought near. I am how people will be brought near. God's church, churches like Christ's covenant, joining together in gospel mission. What does God do in 2 Corinthians 5? He reconciles and he gives the ministry of reconciliation. So in verse 18, Paul says that this ministry is entrusted to us. It's entrusted to us, okay? Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So how is God going to reconcile his people to himself? Through us. Through the people in this room. Through the Christians that God has reconciled to himself, scattered all throughout this world. Through his people. Paul says that this ministry is entrusted. Know this, God can do it anything that he wants. If he so desired, Jesus could appear in the clouds and could uh, sing a beautiful song and say, everybody come to me, look at me, Lord of all. God could go in and he could rearrange all of our wiring so that everybody functions exactly like they're supposed to and everybody follows God. He could do what he desires to do. He doesn't need us. It's not like we're such an indispensable cog in this machine that if we didn't exist, that God would throw his hands up and go, oh no, what should I do now? That's not the reality of the situation. God doesn't need us. 
but he loves us. He loves us, so he lovingly invites us into his mission to participate in the main thing that is happening in this world. So what does he do? He entrusts us, his church, to go and make disciples. He gives us a commission, the great commission, to make disciples by going, by baptizing, by teaching. And we're to do this so that his glory might fill the earth and so that peoples from all corners of the earth would come to a knowledge of God so they would experience his salvation and experience his life. This is how I'm going to do it, says the Lord. I am going to get all of these ragtag people who in their weakness stumble around and I am going to work in them by my spirit so that they can effectively make disciples so that the, the word of reconciliation can go out and so that people, real life people, could actually be saved. The great commission that we've been entrusted with, it's not a burden. So often we can think of this task that's been handed to us and we can think, oh, this is too big. I have so much to do. But this this task isn't meant to be a burden, rather it is meant to be an invitation to joy, to blessing. The commission is a reminder of the privileged life that we have because God has chosen us and now we get to be a part of what he is doing. Paul gives us a really wonderful image so that we can get this not just in our heads but but into our hearts as well. He says that we are ambassadors. Now, that's helpful because theoretically, we should understand somewhat of what ambassadors are. Those those are in our world as well, right? We have ambassadors from the United States and ambassadors to the United States. What what do ambassadors do? Well, ambassadors uh, are sent off on behalf of a country. So United States ambassadors are sent off on behalf of the United States to other countries, and they represent the interest of a country to another country. So we send ambassadors from the United States to Germany and to Spain and to Uganda and to Australia. You name the place. And and these ambassadors, they go and they take up residence in embassies and they go and represent the United States to these countries. They represent the interests of the United States to these countries. They speak on behalf of the United States. There's an authority that is associated with ambassadors. Well, it's similar uh, in Paul's day. That's essentially what ambassadors did as well. It was, it was a little different though. Rome was the, the biggest and most important city. It was the most important nation. And so Rome didn't send out ambassadors. Rome received ambassadors. All these various nations, and they would send ambassadors to Rome to represent their interests. And there's all this literature out there, uh, accounts of who would be chosen as ambassadors. And suffice it to say, to be an ambassador was a great honor. The people who were chosen to be ambassadors inevitably were the most special people from amongst a nation. They were always the people who had the best bloodlines, or they were the wealthiest, or they were the most prestigious, or the most skilled. There was something about them that, that just screamed, I am a special person. Those people would be chosen for the sometimes difficult but, often import, or, but always important work of serving as an ambassador. And so they go, they speak on behalf of the king. 
They'd speak with the king's voices. They would appeal with the king's authority. This is who we are. This is who we are. We are Christ's ambassadors. This is an indicative, a gospel-wrought reality. You may think that there are certain people who are ambassadors. What this is saying is, is that if you are in Christ, we are Christ's ambassadors. God sends ambassadors out, not chosen because they are so important. You see, it's unlike Rome. Rome waited for people to be sent to Rome. God does not wait for people to blindly feel themselves towards him, if that were even possible. No, he takes initiative and he sends his ambassadors out. And he sends them out so that they would set up these little embassies, these little outposts of heaven known as local churches. And he sends them out on mission. Not the most important people chosen because they're prestigious, because they're wealthy, because they're strong, because they're skilled, because they're gifted. No, he sends them out because they're important in his eyes because they are loved by God himself, because they have been called according to his great purposes. And so they go to every corner of the globe, serving as as Jesus' hands and his feet and his mouthpiece, serving the interest of the king so that the king's glory might fill the earth. Christ's covenant, we are a part of God's rescue mission to seek and to save the lost, to gather a lost and dying people to the king, to the one who is worthy of being gathered to, to the one who has life and light in himself. God has blessed us with a call so that we might faithfully participate in this mission, not because we're needed, but because we're loved. And so we set out. You are God's plan. Your life has value. You are a part of the greatest story that has ever been told and the greatest story that is currently being told. God is at work, and he's working through us. But we need to be sobered by this. This past week, uh, the world's population hit 8 billion people. It's an incredible number, 8 billion people. But know this, that's not 8 billion nameless faces out there. That's 8 billion souls. That's 8 billion people who were created in the image of God, 8 billion people, and God knows every one of them. He knows the hairs on their head. He made every one of them for himself. Eight billion people. Joshua Project is this wonderful organization and they put out a lot of great resources and they're saying right now that 3.6 billion people in our world would fit into a group of people who have little or no access to the gospel. They say another 600 million people would be a part of a group that has a little bit of access to the gospel. And so what that means then is that apart from some sort of miraculous intervention, about half of the world's population will most certainly spend their eternity apart from the knowledge and salvation of God and therefore experience the just judgment for their sins. Four billion people. 
And that's not even considering all of the people in areas that have access to the gospel who spurn and reject the gospel. These are real life people who stand condemned. And maybe that's out there. That's, that's the, the nations. It's hard to wrap your mind around. My wife and I, when we were considering moving to Atlanta and praying uh, about this idea, we were really grasped by the Pursue Our Place video that was on Christ Covenant's website for a long time. I don't know if you're familiar with that, that video, but, but in it, Jason is sharing a little bit about why we want to be in the city of Atlanta. And he says that 92% of people with, within the perimeter of Atlanta are considered unchurched. So there's lots of people out there in other countries who don't know the Lord. But know this, our neighbors don't know the Lord. The people in our school systems, in our workplaces, they don't know the Lord. Our family members may very well, like, may very well not know the Lord. Apart from God intervening in our city, in our communities, in our household, people will experience the consequences of enmity with God that comes from sinful rebellion. The stakes are massive. Here's the deal, though. God has intervened. He has reconciled sinners to himself in Christ, and he is reconciling sinners through these ministers of reconciliation that he has sent out us. And so that leads us to our final point. We are fools for Christ. We are fools for Christ. Where does Paul go with all of this? Where does Paul go? The gospel message has been applied to him and entrusted to him and to God's holy church. We have been reconciled. And now he looks at his friends. He looks at his friends. And what will he do? For Paul, he looks at this church, this local church in Corinth, and he sees these people who cannot get out of their own way, who continue to stumble, who continue to fall, who continue to mess up and introduce all sorts of obstacles between them and God. And what does he do? In verse 20, he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. We implore you. How instructive is this for us? Oh, that we would get a little bit of how Paul views other image bearers, of how God views real life people. We implore you. Do you know what it means to implore someone? It means to beg. It means to beg. It means to passionately seek to persuade to get people to figure out, to realize that what you're saying is true. Act in the way that I'm wanting you to act. Do the thing I'm wanting you to do. Believe the thing I'm wanting you to believe. Have you ever seen someone beg? It's not very dignified, is it? Well, Paul isn't seeking to be dignified here. He's looking at his friends, friends that he loves. He's considering Christ who has involved him in his mission, who has saved him to a higher calling than anything he could ever imagine. And now he's looking at them and saying, I want you to have this too. I want you to get in on this. And so I will do whatever I can do. I will sing and I'll dance. I'll make myself a fool. I will, I will decrease so that Christ might increase and so that you might know him. Several years back, 
a friend of mine was in a sort of deconstruction process, and they were realizing that their faith was built on, on shaky foundations. And it, it all kind of culminated in this meeting in a coffee shop, and, and this friend uh, was hearing the gospel be explained to her, and she said, I don't, think, I don't think you guys believe this. I really don't think you believe this. Well, what do you mean? So, well, look around this, this coffee shop and all the people that are in here. Presumably, all or most or all of these people don't actually know the Lord. And so if you actually believe that they're going to hell, then why aren't you doing something about it? Like, why aren't you standing up and running to all of their, their tables and shaking them and saying, believe in Jesus? Don't you know where you're heading? It's like you're, you're about to drive off a cliff. Wouldn't you go and run and, and try to divert them from this sure and certain destruction, from the consequences of their sin that you say that you believe in? I don't believe you. You're just trying to compartmentalize. You're just trying to, to give yourself a psychological sedative that makes sense of all the chaos that you experience in this world. You don't really believe this, and if you did, you would do something about it. Now, this friend, I believe, has a point. Now, she doesn't understand grace. She doesn't understand weakness. She doesn't understand that God came to save sinners and not people who've got everything figured out. She doesn't understand that we're prone to wander. But nevertheless, there is a point there that is worth considering. Do we get that the people we interact with on a day-by-day basis, the people that we live with, the people that we work with, our neighbors, the people that we're going to go and interact with as we leave here and as we scatter and go to coffee shops and restaurants, as we go to the grocery store, do we realize that these are real-life people? And apart from a knowledge of God, apart from being reconciled to God, they will experience consequence. Is that a a present, an active thing in our minds? Or is our faith some sort of psychological sedative that we take to numb us to the reality of of the world? We are God's plan A. God purposed to bring a people to himself, to reconcile sinners, to enter into an intimate, life-giving, joy-fueling relationship with him. He's going to do that through people like us. Is our faith going to be a thing that is just make-believe, or is it going to be that thing that brings us into a right relationship with Jesus and then sets us out to live for him so that he would receive glory and so that others could get brought into this as well. We are the means by which the message of reconciliation, the message of the gospel will get to the ears and therefore hearts of people. And so rather than collapse, let's let this motivate us to faithful mission. Three ways that we'd like to apply this as we go. First, pray. We want to live the mission, then pray. It's easy to preach a sermon like this. It's easy to hear a sermon like this and think that we have to get busy. Like we need to go and hit the street corners. We need to set up organizations. We need to do 
big, bold things for God. Two things about that. One, realize that just strategically, there is wisdom in, or the wisdom that ought to be applied in how we go and herald the gospel. Like relationships don't get formed overnight. And if we want to have uh, a welcome ear, then we need to do the hard work of developing and cultivating relationships. There, there, there is good work that needs to be done. And so we realize that there's a process that needs to happen. But we also need to remember who does the work? Who saves sinners? Remember what we considered right from the very beginning. All of this is from God. God is the one who reconciles. You and I can't do that. We merely take the message of reconciliation. God is the one who reconciles. So how do we appeal to God to do something about the world around us? We pray. We pray. God has ordained it to be that he will act through the prayers of his people. So we give ourselves to praying. We pray privately. We pray corporately. You know, there's, a, there's prayer gatherings that happen at 8 a.m. on Sunday mornings, and you're invited to those. You can come and pray with your church about what the Lord is doing here and beyond our walls. There's Tuesday morning uh, missions-focused prayer gatherings that happen. You can come and pray that God's glory would fill the earth and people would experience his salvation. We pray. Two, we give. We give. Again, this is one of those things that feels anticlimactic, when we're talking about mission, we want to be Indiana Jones Christians. We want to swing from vines and do something big and bold for God. And from time to time, we might have opportunity to do that. But typically speaking, the Christian life looks very normal and very disciplined. And, it's, and, and, and things like the proclamation of the gospel happen through ordinary means. And, and so when we give, two things happen. One, we're able to develop trellises. We're able to develop systems. We're able to develop things that help us herald the gospel. And so we want to send people to Paris. Well, that's going to take money. That's going to take foresight. That's going to take logistics. We want to plan a church somewhere in some international city. Well, that's going to take resources. And giving is one of those ways that we can accomplish this task of living missionally. But prayer is also, or giving is also one of those things that allows us to operate with integrity. The reality is, is some of us have lots of time and some of us have basically no time. We have lots of obligations to family or to work or to different things that life brings up. But by giving to a gospel-centered, missions-focused church or an organization, part of what we do is, is we link arms with other Christians and we set out together because we're better together to accomplish this, miss, this mission in the power of the Spirit. And so we can actually have integrity and seek to accomplish the Great Commission and participate in the Great Commission by giving to the church. And finally, we preach. We preach. We proclaim Christ. And I don't necessarily mean that we come up with three-point sermons and we speak from a stage or a pulpit or something like that. But what I mean to say is, is that whenever we have opportunity, we herald Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Beautiful are the feet of those who take this gospel message and they declare it to others. When we have opportunity, 
When we're sitting around our dinner table and with our children, with our spouse, we're, with our family, we, we preach Christ. When, when we're sitting with our neighbors and we're being hospitable and having them over to our home or we're going over to their home, we're talking over the fence, we preach Christ. When we're at the water cooler, when people are telling us about their passions and their pursuits and we have an opportunity to question those, we preach Christ. Whenever we have opportunity, school systems and our workplaces and our baseball leagues, we preach Christ. We share about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And we trust that through this, God will bring about faith and he will reconcile himself to wayward, lost, alienated sinners. He will bring them near to the glory of his name and for the good of their souls. We pour ourselves out, church. We can do this because God is with us. The spirit is active amongst us. And so let us set out in faith. God is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus and we thank you for an opportunity to gather together in his name today. And Lord, we praise you that through Jesus, you have brought us who have believed in Jesus near. That though we were once far off, Lord, now we have as close and as intimate of a relationship as you can imagine. You have blessed us. And not only that, Lord, but you have privileged us by involving us in your mission. And so, Father, I pray that we would not take that privilege lightly, that we would not put it on the back burner, Lord, but because of Jesus and what he has accomplished on our behalf, Lord, I pray that you would motivate us to live the mission realizing that you actually save sinners. And so, Father, I pray the result of all of this would be a people zealous for your name, set out on this city and on this world in such a way that the baptisms we're about to experience, that we would see these weekly because so many people are trusting in Jesus. Lord, we need you. We're a needy people, and we're grateful that you meet us in our neediness. And so we entrust all of this into your great name. We pray this in Christ's name.